Remember, it's not just Elizabeth Holmes. He was one of Harvey Weinstein's biggest lawyers for years and years and years. His reputation has definitely taken a hit. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Tuesday, January 31st. Today, Eric Gardner joins me to talk about a curious legal theory surrounding the collapse of FTX. Are celebrities like Tom Brady, Larry David, and Steph Curry guilty of using their fame to get customers to invest in Sam Bankman-Fried's shady crypto exchange? Super lawyer David Boyce seems to think so, and he's suing them to prove it. But will his argument survive in court? Eric has the details. And later, it's hunting season on Wall Street. Bill Cohan stops by to discuss the feared activist investor who's taken a multi-billion dollar stake in Salesforce and might be coming for Mark Benioff's head. We'll hear about all that and more in today's episode of The Powers That Be. Happy Tuesday, everybody. Thanks for listening to The Powers That Be. If my voice sounds a little hoarse during this podcast, it's because I came close to losing my voice screaming at the refs during the fourth quarter of the Bengals game. They should be in the Super Bowl, and they're not. But that's a topic for another day. Today, I'm joined by Eric Gardner. How you doing, man? Uh, pretty good. I can advise you about whether you can sue the refs if you want. <laughs> I bet you could. Well, speaking of lawsuits, there's an unusual one going on. It's about FTX and Sam Bankman-Fried. And obviously, lawsuits abound. (laughs) Federal investigations abound with this. But there's one famous attorney coming at this from an interesting angle. And that is David Boyce, who has obviously been a lawyer for big politicians. Uh, He was a lawyer for Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos. He's been involved in so many big, high-profile cases. He's actually going after a bunch of famous people, Tom Brady, Larry David, Giselle Bündchen, Steph Curry, for using their fame to entice customers to open FTX accounts. And as we all know, people lost millions and billions of dollars by opening said accounts. Eric, tell me about this lawsuit. You talked to David Boyce. It sounds like a bit of a stretch that Tom Brady would be in some kind of legal jeopardy for hawking FTX. But what is his theory of this case? Yeah, it's absolutely a stretch. Now, first, let me say, like, why isn't he just suing FTX or why isn't he suing Sam Bankman-Fried? And the the reason is that, you know, if he sued FTX, you know, the bankruptcy would get in his way. Or if he sued SBF, the criminal case would get in his way. So, you know, what he's trying to do is take some sort of other sort of route towards holding people responsible for what happened. And here, his theory is that, you know, People enticed consumers to put money in this platform. They're the ones who use their fame to really, you know, vouch for this company that was dealing with some shady stuff. And so they should pay as well. It's an interesting theory. I am very, very dubious and skeptical about whether this is going to fly. But it's it's interesting enough that, you know, I, I had to speak to David Boys about it and, and hear what he had to say and hear about his travails because, you know, it's pretty interesting. And, and he has made some progress, at least, you know, when it comes to Mark Cuban. Well, before you uh, we get to Mark Cuban, because that's an interesting angle, too. Like, what did he say? Like, how did he defend this case if Tom Brady is representing FTX to his clients and like posting about it on social media? 
we all know that Tom Brady is not a financial savant. He is in the sense that he's made a lot of money and all of these people manage their money and have become wealthy using various uh, entities and uh, portfolios, et cetera. But like if a famous person was hired by like a pharmaceutical company and made promises about that medicine, like are they supposed to know if it doesn't work or if it's flawed or if it's going to fail or if it's going to hurt people? That seems like a dubious case to make in the court of law in the U.S. especially. I think so. I think people are sophisticated enough to know that when people are paid, they, they're doing it for the money. They're not necessarily <laughs> doing it because they believe in the product. But on the other hand, uh, you know, uh, these are people who really did vouch for FTX and they took money. They, they even like were partners in this. They, they took their compensation in terms of uh, tokens and they were a little bit more integrated than maybe your usual celebrity endorser. And I guess so. I in the at the end of this day, I'll be very, very surprised if he's successful. But you know, crazier things have happened. Maybe there's still insurers out there who will just pay uh, to make him go away, and and so maybe the ultimate. Uh, you know, determination of whether he's he's successful or not is not whether he can convince a jury, but whether or not uh, he can score some settlement. Um, right now, uh, I'm sure he has designs on you know interrogating all these celebrities. He he told me he just sent out a, a, a subpoena for Tom Brady, so he's going to hassle them. He's going to make their lives a little bit miserable. He's going to cause them to be embarrassed, and maybe you know someone will throw some money his way to to make him go way we'll see it's a it's 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 certainly interesting so there's like mark cuban you mentioned he is also the subject of a possible lawsuit from david boyce because his crypto entity what's going on there it is definitely a lawsuit. It was actually a lawsuit that happened before the FTX thing because uh, what Mark Cuban did was uh, he had the Dallas Mavericks become the official crypto partner of Voyager. And if you're not into the crypto space, Voyager is a brokerage firm that had millions of customers that went bankrupt. Uh, it was actually a, a platform that, that FTX itself almost bought in bankruptcy in September before FTX went bankrupt. Huh. Um, um, so it's a big thing. There were there are billions of dollars at stake. Voyager kind of went kaput because it overextended itself with loans and then got into a liquidity crisis. I don't think anyone suggested that what Voyager did was criminal, but David Boyce himself suggests that it was all you know sort of a Ponzi scheme. And now he's attacking Mark Cuban with pretty much the same theory that he's attacking Tom Brady in the FTX case. And what's interesting here is that you know this case has been going on a, a little longer, and he's scheduled to depose Mark Cuban this Thursday huh. uh, to get him in a room and and start interrogating him. Um, now Mark Cuban's lawyers are fighting like hell over it. They're also questioning why it is that he's being sued in Florida when you know everyone knows that Mark Cuban's a Dallas person <laughs> and and that's led to some pretty entertaining court briefs where you know Mark Cuban swore that that he basically had nothing to do with the state of Florida except you know like owning property there and then David Boyce's team they dug out the fact that that yeah well he uh, he was the keynote speaker of a crypto conference last year in in Miami um, huh. So they told the judge, you know, this might be perjury. It's really, uh, really fascinating. And, you know, I don't know where this kind of goes from, from here. But, you know, if 
I know Mark Cuban, I know he's not going to back down and he's going to, you know, throw everything he can uh, in defense. Does David have some kind of vendetta against cryptocurrency? Like you see like the the actor from the OC who's just like going around testifying that this was all a scam (laughs) or, you know, the other way to look at this is as much as people in crypto were trying to get rich quick um, and maybe none of them were as smart as and, and talented as David Boyce, but like we talked late last year about how he's part of a lawsuit against Google claiming that Google Chrome doesn't actually have an incognito mode. And so, you know, one of the lines I think in that piece was like, he's collecting some billable hours <laughs> and this feels like another way to collect some billable hours. Is he also looking for ways to get rich quick at this point and just get his name in the headlines or like, why is he so passionate about this? Well, to be clear, Google is definitely taking up more of his time than <laughs> than this FTX stuff. Um, he Not only is he after Google on the privacy front, but he also has an antitrust case that kind of teased what the Justice Department did against Google last week. David Boyce told me that that the Google stuff is is definitely the biggest thing on his docket. But that being said, uh, David Boyce is the head of a of a big plaintiff's firm and they try to get as much business as they possibly can and in this ftx stuff this crypto stuff you know we're looking at multi-billion dollar frauds um where lots of people lost uh money um and so it, it definitely makes for an interesting class action if you can figure out the right legal theory to bring and i think that's what he sees he's he's trying he's trying stuff the guy is 81 years old he's so, 81 so oh wow yeah he's 81 so you know it's interesting to me i asked him you know do do you think that you're going to retire anytime soon and and he told me that basically you know when he thought about it he was going to take things intermittently but as long as he had great cases that he was going to keep going huh. and and he saw that this is, you know, kind of an interesting case that he was going to, you know, take a shot at. I mean, Boyce, I think, became really, really famous, obviously, during Bush v. Gore, you know, being he was one of Gore's attorneys during the recount, et cetera, in the Supreme Court case. But he also, like, helped go after Microsoft and break them up, right? I think the, the Theranos thing and, like, his portrayal in the Hulu series, which was great, kind of made me think that, like, he's party to these lawsuits lately, or he's coming up with legal theories, at least, to go after tech actors. And I'm wondering, like, do you think that's like any kind of like atonement for (laughs) the Theranos thing, or at least his really shitty portrayal in the miniseries? Because these, his, all of this activity that Boyce is up to like happened in the last year after this, the Hulu thing came out. And a lot of people learned, or at least via that show that he did a lot to protect Elizabeth Holmes. Remember, it's not just Elizabeth Holmes. He was one of Harvey Weinstein's biggest lawyers for years and years and years. His reputation has definitely taken a hit around the turn of the century when he was, you know, representing the government to go after Microsoft and he mm-hmm. was, you know, Al Gore's lawyer. I mean, he was literally probably the, you know, most famous attorney in the country. He was, you know, a hero to many. And certainly over these last few years, people have kind of had a reassessment of of him and his career. Uh, I don't know whether what he's doing right now is atonement. I think that, you know, it more kind of fits the category of, you know, this is what plaintiff's lawyers do. They take on big cases. For him, it's, you know, he takes, you know, not just big cases, but pretty challenging ones too. And so I think that's better to read it there, that he is trying to collect the big money pot rather than to, to make some sort of amends for... You know, yeah, Theranos yeah, yeah. and Harvey Weinstein. 
Yeah, well, I should note in your lead, you say that uh, you talked to David Boyce right before he was um, stepping onto his 184-foot sailboat en route to St. Bart's. So he's not want- he's not wanting for money at this point. That sounds delightful. Um, Eric, thanks so much, man. Talk soon. My pleasure. When we come back, Ben Landy talks to Bill Cohan about Salesforce and the investor gunning for Mark Benioff. Welcome back to The Powers That Be. I'm Ben Landy here with Bill Cohan. Nice to see you, Bill. Great to see you again, Ben. We've been talking a lot recently about investor activity on Wall Street, I suppose in part because there are so many companies that became bloated or made strategic miscalculations during the market bubble. Money was cheap. So now it's a target-rich environment for these activists that are coming in as valuations have plummeted. You and I have been talking a lot about Nelson Peltz, the billionaire who's taken a big position in Disney. And now we've also got Jesse Cohn at Elliott Management, who's taken aim at Salesforce. They've got a a multi-billion dollar stake there and a list of demands. First of all, Bill, what is the reputation of Elliott Management and of Cohn? And then what do you suspect that the firm actually wants out of Salesforce? Well, I I assume that the a uh, firm wants what every activist investor wants, which is a return on their investment. They want a higher stock price. They want to make money uh, in as short a time frame as they can, because then their internal rate of return will be higher and they can use that information to raise more money, uh, which of course is how they keep the flywheel, if I may use that term, running. So no matter what they're saying or doing, all, all they really care about is making money, which is, you know, hardly a surprise. You know, their reputation is, um, I've gotten to know them fairly well. I've, ha- I've interviewed Jesse, uh, I've interviewed Paul Singer, uh, the founder, Jonathan Pollack, Gordon Singer, Paul's son. You know, they all seem, when you interview them, when somebody like me interviews them, they all seem charming and rational and calm and intelligent and highly motivated. You know, they don't necessarily show their fangs to me, but, you know, they obviously can be quite, shall we say, determined, even ruthless. They have um, plenty of examples of their uh, ruthlessness. You know, one of the best examples is this is what they did with Athena Health, which was a healthcare company in Boston that was run by Jonathan Bush, who was is related to the two former presidents. And Elliot and specifically Jesse Cohn, uh, you know, wanted Athena Health to do all sorts of things, uh, which Jonathan Bush was resistant to doing. And eventually they uh, decided they needed to uh, go scorched earth uh, on Jonathan Bush and sort of dug up, uh, you know, decade-old uh, divorce records about Jonathan and his wife at their most extreme uh, and, you know, uh, accusations of his bad behavior with her. I, I gather they've since reconciled, even though they're still divorced and they're raising their children together. But, you know, again, it was enough to turn the tables on Jonathan Bush he was replaced as CEO. And the, the, the thing that I find so interesting about that case is that uh, sort of six months later, after they got rid of Jonathan Bush, Elliott teamed up with another buyout firm to actually buy 
Athena Health to actually own the company, which is not necessarily something that hedge funds usually do. Uh, that's something private equity funds do. And 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 I think Elliot, by the way, has sort of has a hybrid model in that regard in that they are willing to buy companies as well as take positions in them and advocate for changes. Uh, so Elliot ended up buying Athena Health. They bought it for $5.7 billion and recently sold it to Hellman and Friedman, a big buyout firm in San Francisco, for $17 billion. So they must have made a fortune, a fortune on Athena Health. So, you know, they are very smart. They also can sometimes be, how shall we say, gracious and ecumenical, believe it or not. They bought Barnes & Noble, the bookstore chain, and installed James Dount, uh, who had turned around, I believe, Waterstone's bookstore in the UK and brought him over here to try to turn around Barnes & Noble. And, uh, you know, Ezra Klein uh, the other day in the New York Times wrote a piece about how marvelous Barnes & Noble is becoming again. I think that's probably the gist of it. Uh, and so, you know, why Elliot bought Barnes & Noble uh, when it was obviously struggling to compete against Amazon, I don't know, but then they brought a real bookseller um, with real street cred um, and a string of accomplishments to run it. And I think slowly but surely he's having some impact, although hard, of course, to compete against Amazon in, in the book world. But that's sort of the two sides of, of Elliot. You know, there are many sides of Elliot. I think they've, you know, used to be far more ruthless and argumentative and demanding, you know, and I think over the last few years, they've tried to soften themselves a little bit. And so far with Salesforce, they're, you know, sort of taking a supportive position with Mark uh, Benioff, but obviously they want to make money. Well, yeah, I'm curious about Salesforce and Benioff specifically. I mean, Salesforce stock is down not that much compared to other tech companies, but they have experienced a lot of the same problems as other Silicon Valley companies over the last two years or so. They, they've hugely overhired during the pandemic. They went on this buying spree where they, they bought Slack for $28 billion, which was a, a huge multiple of that company's revenue. And then not only did they overpay, there's been reports of internal tension over how Slack was integrated. You've had executives leaving the co-CEO, Brett Taylor, Slack founder, Stuart Butterfield. All these guys are deciding suddenly they want to spend more time with their families. So what is the playbook if you are beanie off and you're trying to write this ship? Do you worry about playing ball with the Elliott guys? Could they be coming for Benioff's job as well? Um, my view of, of all of these guys, um, especially the ones who are big cage rattlers, like uh, Nelson Peltz, like Elliott Management, like Bill Ackman, you're, you're generally you know, sort of better off uh, reaching some sort of accommodation with them as soon as you possibly can to get their noise-making and distraction out of the system because there's only so much bandwidth that any one person has. And, you know, I, I don't know Mark Benioff. I mean, you know, thank you, Mark, for buying and rescuing Time Magazine. Uh, you know, thank you for trying to make a difference in the media world. Thank you for being one of the largest employers in San Francisco and building a, a tower that is architecturally significant and I think had some weird problems that you resolved. But right now, uh, you know, you've lost two of your key management team. You've got to deal with 
a bloated cost structure, um, a slowdown in purchase of your products, uh, you know, you've got to, you, the last thing you need is a, sort of a fight now with Elliott Management, who's got endless resources to make your life crazy. And it's, you know, not entirely clear what they want other than a higher stock price. But my, my, you know, experience in reporting on all these guys is, you know, the sooner you kind of appease them, uh, you know, and appease is an interesting word because sometimes even appeasement doesn't really end the story. But as soon as you reach an accommodation with them, uh, the better, you know, you can uh, carry on and focus on what's really important, which was, you know, riding the ship of your business and not dealing with these extraneous gnats and buzzing that goes comes along with these activist investors who increasingly, by the way, don't really even have to own that much stock to become quite troublesome and bothersome and annoying. And, you know, if I were Mark Benioff or if I were Bob Iger, I would, you know, not engage in a proxy fight with Tryon. I would not. And maybe I would probably want to, by the way. My ego would probably, you know, want to stand up to them and show them that, uh, you know, I'm bigger and tougher than they are. But I just think that's a losing strategy. It just always is. You know, I mean, there's some activist hedge fund managers who, you know, I think like for whatever reasons, I don't fully understand Dan Loeb can, for instance, be more benign than others when he wants to be. Uh, you know, he sort of comes and goes uh, more quickly than the others. He seems to have reached, uh, an, you know, an appeasement of sorts with Bob Chapek at Disney. He's still in that deal, as far as I can tell. But he's, you know, letting uh, Nelson Peltz do the cage rattling at the moment. Um, he comes and goes more quickly. There are others who just stick around and bang the drum and get on CNBC uh, and make their case until they get their way. And that can just be extraordinarily distracting for any CEO, for any board of directors. And I just would not, you know, they really have a very successful, high success rate of getting what they want, which is either making money or making things happen, making executives leave, getting the kind of CEO they want in place. And, you know, I don't think Mark Benioff is at risk of losing his job because he's a founder, but, you know, and they don't own enough stock to replace him, I don't think. I haven't studied that closely. But, you know, reaching an accommodation is probably the quickest and safest way to, you know, put this in the past. Well, like you said the other day, Bill, it's hunting season for these guys, the activist investors who are out there looking for these soft targets. And it is a real reversal of fortunes for Benioff after, you know, as you mentioned, he, he bought Time Magazine, he built the tallest skyscraper in San Francisco. Maybe that's just the circle of life for these kind of companies like Salesforce that get too big too fast and then um, activate the activists who come in to, uh, to right-size them. But Bill, thanks as always for stopping by. Appreciate it. Thank you, Ben. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts.
The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13, and produced by Ben Landy, executive editor at Puck. Puck.